So importantly, you know, I feel like we really wanted to create a firm that lives its beliefs thoroughly. And I know that that will resonate with you because yeah, 100% does. Contrary to popular belief, that is not the norm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we wanted to do things the way we think that should be done and to be very forward leaning on ESG and impact, which I know is a political landmine right now, but I don't care because I think that there's so much materiality and economic value in these non-financial considerations about a company that these are going to be the companies that are going to be on the right side of change, full stop. And so that's what we wanted to do was build a better way to assess companies in a world that's going to be very different than the one we've been living in for the past, you know, several decades. Hey, my name is Stacey Havener. I'm obsessed with startups, stories, and sales. Storytelling has fueled my success as a female founder in the toughest boys club, Wall Street. I've raised over $8 billion that has led to $30 billion in follow-on assets for investment boutiques. You could say against the odds. Yeah, understatement. I share stories of the people behind the portfolios while teaching you how to use story to shape outcomes. It's real talk here. Money, authenticity, growth, setbacks, sales and marketing are all topics we discuss. Think of this as the capital raising class you wish you had in college mixed with happy hour. Pull up a seat, grab your notebook, and get ready to be inspired and challenged while you learn. This is the Billion Dollar Backstory Podcast. This is a story about journeys. The journey of an Iranian family to America. The journey of a self-made entrepreneur, his wife, and four daughters in California. The journey of a young woman determined to make her own way. And she did just that. In, of all places, the asset management industry. She built a career from the ground up all the way to the CEO seat. Heidi Ridley spent 18 years at AXA Investment Managers, rising to global chief executive of Rosenberg Equities. She spearheaded the effort to become the first ESG-integrated quantitative equity investor focused on the intersection of ESG insights and advanced factor solutions. She's been a finalist for Woman of the Year in the investment industry, not once, but twice. Heidi is smart, she's determined, and she's brave. She's on a new journey now, her own entrepreneurial one. Alongside her co-founder, Catherine McDonald, a 20-year veteran and head of sustainable investing at Rosenberg Equities, together they launched Radiant ESG, an investment boutique dedicated to investing in the companies at the intersection of positive change and quality fundamentals. It's also a journey of art and science, right brain and left brain, performance and passion. There are people behind the portfolios. There are faces behind the factors and models. Today, you get a chance to meet someone who will make you rethink what you know about quant, about ESG, and about authentic leadership. Prepare to be inspired. Without further ado, meet my friend, Heidi Ridley. Heidi Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. We've had a few chats. There's so many synergies between us, just professionally, personally, all the things. I am thrilled to welcome our guests into the Radiant ESG studio where they can be a fly on that beautiful wall behind you. So (laughs) thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited. Awesome. Well, we start... At the beginning, my friend, with my favorite thing, which is, of course, your story. And as I always say to people, I'm going to encourage you to start wherever, you know, you want to start. You don't have to just make it like your career. If there was something that really drives you, that inspires your passion, go back as far as you want to go and tell us a little bit about your journey. Okay. Gosh, I think, you know, a lot of the underpinnings probably date way, way back. I think, you know, first thing is I was born in Iran. My mom's American, actually, but she comes from a Norwegian 
background and my dad's Iranian and they met in Iran after my mom graduated from college and decided to go there to teach English. So I was born there and I didn't come to the U.S. until I was a little over one. And then we basically moved back and forth. So my mom was a teacher. So I would have one school year in Iran, one school year in the U.S., kind of back and forth. And when I was in Iran, I was in a bilingual school. So we ended up being en route to the U.S. when the Iranian revolution broke out in 1979. So I was 10 years old and we just kind of, my dad lost everything. So we ended up permanently in the U.S. sort of unexpectedly in a way. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of an interesting experience because on one hand, because my mom was American, I, you know, felt just as American as I did Iranian. And depending on the place, I sort of chameleoned myself. But the challenge was that, so we moved here and I was going to school here, my sisters and I, and then the hostage crisis broke out. Mm -hmm. And what was really, I think, jarring about that was that, you know, here I am going to an American school with my sisters and you know, feeling very at home and comfortable. But because of our last name, when the revolution broke out and the the hostages were taken, you know, we were really ostracized when we were in school because of that. And so all of a sudden, you know, you go from, you know, being very comfortable to feeling like an outsider kind of overnight. And that was, a, you know, I feel like I'm not sure I tapped into it at that age, Mm -hmm. but kind of looking back, I feel like that was sort of the start of really feeling the need to like accept people, you know, and just and not be judgmental and, you know, kind of things like that. So that was sort of mm-hmm. the start of it. And um, anyway, we tried to rebuild here. And I think the second piece of it was that my dad really struggled with that. He he was a serial entrepreneur, um, but like with super mixed results. So he started like a video game company that did really, really well, made me certainly popular in our little town of Danville. But then he had other ventures that, you know, just did not pan out. And so it was a very stressful time where, you know, I mean, I had a paper route since I was really, really young. And it sort of felt like my mom was working. You know, it was like a lot of chicken, frozen chicken pot pie, dinner evenings, you know, kind of thing. And so the experience was to some degree sort of fended for yourself. But also I sort of felt like I didn't want to be a burden on my parents, you know, because they were already kind of. At this point, we're now four girls. I'm the oldest. And so, you know, to me, I kind of always felt like I needed to make my own way, which I think was a big part of it. And so when I went to school, I ended up taking out a bunch of student loans just to put myself through school. And believe it or not, oftentimes like borrowing on a credit card to pay something else, you know. So, I mean, I was creating a nice little (laughs) debt hole for myself. (laughs) I mean, it's not funny, but I laugh because I get it. I get it. Keep going. It was kind of crazy. And I think the other, you know, one thing I do regret is that I worked all the way through college. I went to school at Berkeley and I worked at a restaurant there and also did tax, you know, worked at a tax firm during tax season. So I was always juggling like a couple of jobs plus school. And so I kind of felt like school was just a blur. College was just Mm -hmm. a blur. Like I didn't really... I feel like experience it fully. And I was sort of eager to get out like at four, you know, (laughs) I'm going to graduate four years. And and I started out pre-med. I I got a scholarship to UC Santa Barbara and I went there on a, you know, biology, a major wanting to be pre-med, but I transferred after a quarter because I just decided, A, I needed something a bit more serious at the time. Santa Barbara wasn't, you know, as hard to get into as it is now. It's a bit more of a party school, but So I transferred to Berkeley with the idea that, you know, I just needed to do something that was going to get me a job like right away. And so, so anyway, long story short, I kind of stumbled into econ, not really knowing anything about it, not really knowing what I wanted to do and working my way through college at primarily at this restaurant that I loved. And so I I actually thought I wanted to be kind of a, I wanted to own my own restaurant. You know, that was what I, I wanted to do. I was waiting tables. I was a manager. I, you know, really enjoyed it. And so I stayed there after college and thought, you know, I'm going to kind of give this a go. After about six or nine months, I kind of thought, I feel like maybe I need to do something different, you know, and maybe more serious. And so I, at the time, looked in the newspaper, (laughs) do you remember? 
they would have the ads for like different jobs. And yes. I'll never forget it because there was a big ad in the middle that said movers and shakers. And I was like, oh, that got my that, attention. So I, yeah. I answered the ad and it turned out to be an executive recruiting firm, which I didn't even know what that was. And so I ended up going in a meeting with them and I'm very split brained. You've talked about this a lot on your yeah. podcast is I feel like I'm equally left and, and right brained. And so I was going for everything from like a publishing job to accounting jobs. Like it was like, <laughs> I really honestly had no idea what I wanted to do. And long story short, I ended up landing at an investment banking firm in San Francisco called Montgomery Securities. And really what drew me to that was the team. And I think therein lies like the foundation for everything is culture, people, teams. You know, you spend so much time at work. It's like, it's got, you've got to be with people you enjoy who really, you know, are creative and keep you challenged and learning kind of all the time. And I worked with this really small team um, that was actually focused on looking at new venture investments for Japanese clients. So I took Japanese for like a semester. I was super into it. Oh uh, my anyway, gosh. So that was kind of the start of stumbling into a career. And at the time, investment banking, but ultimately I ended up transitioning into the asset management group of Montgomery Securities. So that was sort of how I ended up in asset management. And by the way, I still worked at the restaurant at night. So I was working at the asset management firm during the day, doing like present, putting together presentations, just any like support kind of role. Mm -hmm. And then working at nights at a restaurant to pay off those student loans. So it was an interesting time. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm sure it's, I know it's tough sometimes to sort of like hit on the things that are really drivers of our passion and our philosophy and kind of who we are and why we do what we do in a short amount of time. I think you did a really great job. I want to spend a few minutes on, you know, now this sort of second half of, of your story, which is now you're in asset management. You've just shared you're kind of doing anything and everything, just supporting roles. But my goodness, that's not where you ended up. So how did you go from, you know, your entry level job in asset management to where you are now? It's sometimes, you know, I wonder that myself. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> it's funny because I think when people meet me, they feel like I'm very, you know, determined and, yeah. and ambitious. And so it's sort of like, I think they assume I had this like whole thing mapped out. And the yeah. reality is it was one stumble after another stumble in a positive way into mm-hmm. things that I, you know, didn't think I wanted to do, you know, things like that. And it just sort of, I don't know. It transpired is the way I would say it. But yeah, when I was when I was first um, an executive assistant to the head of the asset management group at Montgomery, who to this day, I revere like he was just such an amazing mentor and just support it. And, you know, I kind of feel like I grew into my confidence. So he was someone really probably the first person other than my parents who I think really believed in me. And so I remember going down to the trading floor at Montgomery Securities and being so impressed with the chaos. I loved it. Like it was just insanity down there. And so, you know, I went to Stephen and I said, you know, I think I want to be a trader. And he thought I was crazy. And the funny thing is people later in my career have asked me like, you know, with women, like, have you ever had challenges or, you yeah. know, been discriminated against or any of those things? And the reality yeah. is I have I have a very positive, you know, career path. And I feel like there were a lot of men who were super supportive of me. So my instinctual an- answer is not really. I feel like I was lucky, you know. But then when I look back, that trading conversation was an interesting one because... <laughs> I went to Steven. I said, I really want to be a trader. And li- and I love him to death. But his response to me, now this was in the early 90s. His response to me was, you know, you can have a great career in asset management and not lose your femininity. Because, <laughs> you know, the trading floor was like pretty much oh. 98% men, you know? Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Yes. At all. I love that. I was like, this is awesome. Yeah. And so we made a deal. I basically said, well, listen, I don't want to be an executive assistant for the rest of my life. And I really want to, you know, grow in my career here. And so then another opportunity doesn't open up for me in six months within this firm. Mm -hmm. Then I want you to support me to get my, you know, license to become a trader. And we had a deal. 
And so then from there, you know, it was, I did get that promotion. I did, you know, interestingly, it was to do RFPs, which I was <laughs> like, I wanted nothing to do with it. Because I'm a people person. I don't sit behind a desk and write, you know, responses to like, describe your research process, you know, over and over and over again. Yeah. So I, I was, I did not like that idea at all. And Stephen was like, this is where you need to start. And in hindsight, it was honestly the biggest stepping stone because I learned so much about the company and how we did things by oh. responding to these questions and really thinking about the nuance, which I don't think a lot of people do. So, you know, there's like an RFP library. You get the question about research. You type in research. You take copy, paste, research answer into here. But there's a big difference between what's your research philosophy versus mm-hmm. what's your research approach versus, yes. you know, how is your research organized? You know, like, you know, there's, so I started really thinking about those nuances. And I think that really gave me a deeper understanding of the company, which was what I needed to then become a salesperson, you know, move on to other roles. So mm-hmm. you know, that's just one example of something where you kind of yeah. go, that's not really for me. And then you look back and go, oh my gosh, if I hadn't done that, I would have never been on this path kind of thing. And just to kind of pull on that thread a little bit, it really does hit on the power of narrative because in a way what you were doing and you said nuance, which I love, like you were figuring out like what makes us us, yeah. what makes us different? How do we communicate that in a way that, you know, people can understand it and process it and have it mean something to them? Yeah. And I can imagine certainly as you kind of evolved in your career and big time now, as you sit here as, you know, the founder of a, an investment boutique, like those are critical skills that probably get underplayed because it's asset management and you should be good at math. Right. 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 Yeah, absolutely. So you evolve there yeah. and maybe jump to where were you, you know, so obviously you have a, a big career. Where were you before you started Radiant? So I was at a firm called Rosenberg Equities. Uh, it was a pioneer in quant investing. Um, I The firm was started in the mid 80s and had been on a pretty good path to success. I joined the firm when we were about 14 billion and we grew at the peak to 150 billion with offices you know, around the world. And I was heading up distribution in North America and then took over as head of global client services. And so Again, another role where I was like, you know, I'm more, you know, wanting to build relationships. You know, I'm not, you know, so good at like servicing, (laughs) you know, relationships. But actually, you know, again, I feel like that just gave me a different perspective on the client servicing model that I really think helped, you know, ultimately helped improve things. But, you know, it was at a time when the firm hit a really, a pretty big crisis and challenge. And so being the leader of the folks that are on the front line was really an eye-opening experience. And, but, you know, also showed me, I think that in some ways, the depth of my resilience and commitment, because I really (laughs) felt it was a special place. It really was. It had a really unique culture, great team, very eclectically diverse, and I just loved it. And so I really was committed to seeing the firm through that. And ultimately, you know, again, in the category of like, how did you end up where you ended up? Yeah. Head of client service. And and when they brought in ultimately a new CEO and, you know, I was really kind of leading this effort to kind of stabilize and rebuild the firm. And so he asked me to be his right hand as COO. So I I moved into that role kind of, again, unexpectedly kind of a chief of staff type of of role and just a little detour in that I was super nervous about taking on that role because there was a woman in that role before me who, you know, the functions like risk and, you know, legal and operations and all that reported to that role. And I thought, wow, this woman was very technically strong when it came to like, mm. operations and risk management and things like that. And I thought my background is distribution and then, you know, leading teams. And so I kind of felt like, how am I going to fill these shoes? And it was probably the first time that I realized that 
I don't need to fill someone else's shoes. You know, a lot of times when roles change, they change for a reason and because the company needs something different. And so they're not really looking for you to replace the person that was there one for one. They're looking for what is going to take the company forward. And at that time, we were integrating our functions anyway with the big parent company. So I wasn't going to be directly responsible for those functions in any case. And so I really focused on the team. How do we secure, retain, motivate, engage our teams after this big thing that everyone kind of had been through? And so I kind of put my own mark on it. And it and I was in that, I was the longest role I've been in in a company it was seven years in that role. Because I've stayed with companies for a long time, but changed roles within. Sure. And then, then my my predecessor's CEO decided to move on, and and uh, I was the first kind of internally appointed uh, CEO successor, which again scared me to death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was pretty nerve wracking. But you know, you get that imposter syndrome for sure. But yes. I, you know, really felt supported by the team, by the company. I felt like people were really rooting for me, especially with the relationships that I had built. And so I kind of felt this real sense of, of responsibility to help take the firm forward. So I was there ultimately 18 years before I wow. decided to leave. And therefore, it was a huge decision because I really thought I was going to be a lifer there. The company meant a lot to me. The people really continue to mean a lot to me. I still see a lot of them. So it was a big, it was a huge decision, not the least of which was my dad's very mixed experience. I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. I always oh. loved being kind of like the wizard behind the curtains, like having like a consigliore, like having influence and responsibility, but not like you're it, you know, you're the one like this is on you. You know what I mean? We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Ultimus Fund Solutions. Since our founding in 1989, we believe that alternative investments are an integral part of client portfolios. Unfortunately, delivering high-quality hedge funds and private market exposures has always been a challenge for the wealth management industry. These type of alternative investments introduce unique challenges related to taxes, qualifications, paperwork, and reporting. As a result, high-net-worth investors tend to be significantly underallocated to both hedge funds and private markets relative to institutional investors. That's Stephanie Lang, Chief Investment Officer from Homrick Berg, an $11 billion RIA headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, that serves over 2,700 clients in 46 states. You can tell they believe in helping high net worth clients access hedge funds and other alternative investments. They are equally as passionate about broadening that access for all their clients, not just qualified purchasers or a select group of accredited investors. Meet Nick Darsh from Ultimus with some backstory. Hallmark Berg created a 3C1 fund in January 1999 to provide their high net worth and institutional investors with ready access to a diversified portfolio of hedge funds. As interest in the fund grew and the constraint of the 100 investor rule loomed, HB began exploring ways to continue expanding the investor pool without negatively affecting existing shareholders. We'll hear more about the creative fund conversion work that made it possible later in the show. Now, back to the program. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Ultimus Fund Solutions. When we first launched our internal fund of funds as a limited partnership, it was a great option for us to be able to provide 100 of our accredited and qualified purchaser clients with access to a diversified portfolio of hedge fund strategies. However, fast forward to 2016, our firm had grown to manage over 4 billion and serve over 1,000 clients of various sizes, accreditations, and tax situations. We still firmly believe that high-quality hedge fund exposure is important to client portfolios. It provides stability to client portfolios and generates a return stream that was not available in public and equity and fixed income markets. Unfortunately, the 3C1 structure with its slot limitations, high minimums, 
and K-1 reporting was no longer ideal solution for our growing and complex client base. We looked at various alternative options with third-party hedge fund managers, liquid hedge mutual funds, but also discovered that we had an opportunity to register our fund with the SEC, preserve its extensive track record, and solve all of the issues that the 3C1 structure was creating for our business and clients. That's when we teamed up with Ultimus to begin the process of registering our legacy fund with the SEC and converting it to a tender offer fund. We'll hear more later in the show. Now, back to the program. That is super interesting, that last piece for sure, because I hadn't, you know, kind of connected that storyline. But I imagine when you decide to make this leap, I can see why that would come back around and get bubble up for you. So let's talk about that. So you decide that you want to start your own investment boutique. And I know there's a team around you. And so talk about like, it is a very big decision, by the way. So let's just pause on that before I even ask the next question. I think many times what I see is that you get a very talented portfolio manager, executive, they decide, hey, you know, I'm really talented at this thing. Like, I'm really good at my craft. And so I'm going to build a business around that craft. And what they underestimate, and I say they, I should say we, because it happened to me too, is that you can be very, very good at your craft, but now you also have to get good at entrepreneurship, to your point about your dad. Yeah. And so it's a big decision to go out on your own. And so what was the vision? Like, what drove you forward on that? There was two elements that came to play, I guess. One was I really had a vision for what I thought Rosenberg could be, you know, post the crisis and, you know, we stabilized, the firm survived, you know, it was a great team. And so a lot of the foundational, I guess, ideas and vision for Radiant came from what I thought I could do and wanted to do with Rosenberg. So it mm-hmm. put it this way, it had been a in the making for quite yes. a bit of time. I was trying to pull out some unique features, really trying to solve multiple objectives for our clients and just think about how we could kind of stand out in a crowd where a lot of people have, you know, bigger, stronger brands than we do. So the vision kind of formed there. What ended up, you know, triggering the like, okay, now I need to go do it on my own was I think trying to convince others, you know, when we were a very small piece of a large organization. So there were a lot of competing priorities. And so for me, I think in that process, I really convinced myself that I really had something mm-hmm. in the vision that I wanted to build that was special and worth pursuing. And, you know, at the end of the day, I have to say a lot of frustration kind of probably was what tipped it over sure, and just made me feel like I just got to take this opportunity, you know, now. And I was very fortunate. My husband was super supportive. He really believed in it. And so, you know, I just decided to to take the leap. And it was a very difficult decision to say goodbye to my team. And in particular, because I announced that I stayed on in an advisory role for many months. It was a very mutual, you know, departure. The company was really great to me, but, but I announced I was leaving on March 9th of 2020, which was the day that the markets (laughs) is a camera cracking up. No, I'm laughing because of 2020. It's like you're well, going to launch your new biz was, like right in the face of It was right know. in the face. And by the way, yeah. you know, I had literally like little detour. The last week of February, I was in London with our team. I was in Paris with the you know, the parent company just kind of working through what we needed to do with the transition. I'm on the tube on the London underground shoulder to shoulder with a million other people. Oh my gosh. I had no idea. This no one was really kind of talking about it then. Right. And I remember being on my first the first the flight home, which was the like the end of last day of February. And about 10, 15% of people had masks on. And I thought, wow, really? Like that's super conservative. <laughs> you know, and the next thing Yeah, you're you like, know, I don't know. Yeah. And then, so then on March 9th, the markets fell off a cliff, were totally imploding. And this is the day that I'm like, 
announcing that I'm, I'm leaving to pursue something else. It was a very emotional day. And in some ways, it was nice to just get the, it off my chest, you know, but it was a very emotional day. And, and so by the end of that week, I was pretty exhausted. And my husband said, let's go up to Tahoe. It's snowing, you know, mm. you know great ski weekend and just decompress. It's now out there, you know, whatever. And Monday, the world went on lockdown. So I left an 18-year career with a company that I deeply, you know, loved and never really even got to say, you know, goodbye in any sort of, you know what I mean? It was like, I mean, the team was so yeah. cute because we did Zooms. And so they organized where everyone like held up like a thank you thing on a Zoom. Uh, but it was, you know, it was strange to kind of that is. literally go from always having worked to now I'm not working and I'm on lockdown. Like, yeah, it was bizarre. Wow. Okay. So, and you're like, hmm, I'm going to just like give entrepreneurship a whirl in the middle of a pandemic. No big deal. Right. So amazing. Thank you for sharing all of that. So let's dive in a little bit on Radiant and your co-founder, right? There's two of you. Was it the two of you founded together? Okay. So talk about the vision for Radiant. You know, you decide you're going to have this investment boutique you know, what were the the driving philosophies of why the world needs another investment boutique? Exactly. Which, oh, by the way, I'm solidly in the camp that yes, it does. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I, yeah. you know, it's funny, that was the first question I thought of is why in the world does the world yeah. need a management firm? But, you know, honestly, I've been in this industry more than 30 years now. And, you know, sadly, not a lot has changed. I mean, stability in some ways is a good thing, but the world around us, I think, is changing so significantly. And I still see so many anchors to like what's worked in the past and a real reluctance to embrace change. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things that I did in my prior job was just keep pushing on the fact that change can bring about really positive things. It can be jarring. It can make you uncomfortable. Yes. But at the same time, if you see it for the opportunity, it can just be so significant and very, very positive. So I really think we need to, generally speaking, reshape this business for relevancy in a future that is going to look very different from the past. We cannot kid ourselves that that is not absolutely, you know, underway. And so, you know, I really wanted to to have a purpose-built firm with that objective. And so I think Catherine and I, Catherine is our head of sustainability at Rosenberg, and we go back a long way. She was there more than 20 years. We've worked together a long time. And so, you know, we left top roles at a prior firm because we really had a clear vision of what we wanted to build and how we wanted to build it. And what that was, was, you know, we've really taken, I think a little bit unique from other emerging managers is we've taken very senior experienced people with like decades of experience and the best DNA of that firm, of an investment thought leader, and kind of enhanced it with this sort of fresh entrepreneurial perspective. And in doing that, I think we've significantly improved on, you know, what we did before, kind of leveraging alternative data and new and cutting edge tools that weren't available to us 20, 30 years ago, you know. And I think the key thing, a lot of times, you know, people focus on the downside risk to a boutique or an emerging manager, but there's so much we're like we're not stuck with legacy systems or mindsets oh, yeah. you know, that can't keep up with a world that's moving beyond them. You know, we have a unique ability to be innovative, nimble, conviction based. And so importantly, you know, I feel like we really wanted to create a firm that lives its beliefs thoroughly. And I know that that will resonate with you because yeah, 100% does. Contrary to popular belief, that is not the norm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we wanted to do things the way we think that should be done and to be very forward leaning on ESG and impact, which I know is a political landmine right now, but I don't care because I think that there's so much materiality and economic value in these non-financial considerations about a company that these are going to be the companies that are going to be on the right side of change, full stop. And so that's what we wanted to do was build a better way to assess companies in a world that's going to be very different than the one we've been living in for the past, you know, several decades. So, I mean, that's sort of the concept. Now, I have a question because, you know, I'm sitting here and if I'm familiar you know, with Rosenberg, and obviously you've touched on it a little bit, and I know in my head, I'm like, huh, Quant. And now here you are saying like ESG and impact, which I think of 
very qualitatively. Mm-hmm. So can you kind of talk about those two, which probably fits with your left brain, right brain, right? Where ands, yes. not ors. Yes. But can you yeah. talk about how those two things marry up for you? Like, would you say yeah. you're quant? I would say we're systematic. A lot of okay. people do them as one and the same. But what I would say mm-hmm. is we've taken a lot of the very beneficial tools that a systematic process gives us. So I do believe, even though the data is less progressed, certainly with ESG, and you have new data providers every day, you know, that need yeah. to be assessed. I personally think someone with a quant background absolutely should have an advantage because we are used to assessing data sets for quality, for relevancy, for whether there's any insight from the information that's there, whether it's, you know, a very slick interface, but once you dig underneath, there's, it's like not a lot of substance. You know, we're used to dealing with unwieldy things. We're used to dealing with mapping information. There's a lot of benefits and quants know how to deal with alternative data sets, I think, in different ways. And so what one thing a systematic process gives us being a small team and a startup is efficiency, scale, discipline. And if we can take the type of detail analysis any fundamental manager, anyone would want to do on a particular company and codify that into a model and be able to do that detailed analysis across all companies instead of having to do like a screening process Mm. to get it down to the couple of hundred we're really going to spend time on. So we're bringing the detail, I guess, upstream. And so that's part of the benefit of a systematic process. Now, ESG is different in that most quants really like to take comfort in backtesting their way into confidence. And you, you cannot do that with ESG data. And so it is very critical that we are investors first and quants second. And what I mean Ooh. by that is we try to model everything we possibly can so that it's very systematic, void of behavioral biases and all these things. But at the end, we're not going to just take the output of the models and hit trade, <laughs> You know, so the team really spends time on the recommendations to really understand if they fit with our expectations, particularly around what we know about the company from an ESG perspective. Is there something the model isn't capturing that we need to be thinking about? And so there's this final sort of qualitative review before we implement the portfolios, precisely because we're dealing with something that's new and evolving. And so it's kind of a marriage of art and science, but I think a really important one where we try to lean as heavily as we can on the science, which also enables us to bring in new ideas very quickly, test those ideas, understand them and all of that. But we can't stop at having that fiduciary responsibility of really looking through every stock and saying, does this pass the sniff test? You know, so that's sort of how we're handling it, which is pretty different. And for a quant, Most people expect quants, generally speaking, to hold hundreds of stocks, you know, really be focused on risk, you know, stocks for risk purposes as much as for alpha purposes. You know, generally speaking, they're not talking about any single position. It's more about features of groups of companies, you know, things like that. Where we're different is we're running 60 to 70 stock portfolios. They're, for us, pretty high conviction. We can talk about every position in the portfolio, why it's there, and that's unique. So we, you know, in some cases, some would say we're straddling the fence. I would say we're carving our own path. Yeah. Of what we think is the right way to do it. And it's maybe not going to fit every perfect box, but we think it's the right way to do it. But isn't that the thing, though? That is the thing. It's like, look, we don't have to fit every box. We don't have to be for everybody. We are for somebody specific. Right. And I think that you articulated that beautifully that, look, you know, some people might like just qualitative fundamental investors and that's fine. And some people might like totally systematic quantitative investors and that's fine. If you're just a purist in either one of those camps, maybe we're not for you. And guess what? That's yeah. okay. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is who we are and we own it and we are looking for like-minded investors who share this philosophy. That's right. awesome. That's authenticity. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, for me, it's very liberating. Totally. It feels really good to just be very conviction-driven in what you do and have that strong belief system and really invest in it, you know, especially now. 
with the backdrop we have, you know, we're leaning even more heavily because, you know, for us, ESG in particular, it's not a way for us to express our values. It's not a way for us to have a political stance. It's not a way for us to exclude groups of companies because some arbitrary score says they're not so great. For us, it's about really understanding the ecosystem in which a company operates. And it's more than its financials. Where is a company physically located these days with climate change, which yes, is real. (laughs) You know, how does a company engage with its supply chain? How does a company work with its labor force, treat its labor force? What do NGOs have to say about this company? Let's not just lean on everything the company says about itself. Let's look at what others (laughs) have to say about the company, as shocking as that might seem. And finally, you know, let's not just look in the rearview mirror or look at the company today and say, hmm, they're not so great. And so therefore, because we're in public equities, we're not robbing these companies of capital. So for us, it's about where is this company going? Nowhere else in finance are we looking in the rearview mirror. Our job is to predict the future. Our job is to look at who are going to be the winners of the future. And for us, a big part of that is the company's environmental, social, and governance footprint as much as it is, is the company fundamentally and financially sound? And do we think that they're going to continue to improve in the future? So for us, it's very, very material very economically founded. And at the end of the day, we wouldn't be in business if we weren't here to try to outperform for our clients. Right. So, you know, that's really kind of the soapbox that we we can tend to get on when we see things like ESG get in political crosshairs. So interesting. And, and I think that that actually is a great dovetail to my next question or topic, because I, whatever you want to call it, greenwashing, whatever, ESG was like the hot thing. Maybe it still is. But like, Everybody who jumped on the ESG train, right? A lot of huge companies said, oh yeah, we have something. We have a sustainable fund or we have an impact fund or we have an ESG process. Sure, here it is. And so I wonder, and I'm sure you have a lot to say about that in general, but I wonder, (laughs) I wonder, so here you are, you're this investment boutique, you know, co-founded by two very successful women. You're building this great thing. And you're already battling the odds. And now you have these big, huge behemoth companies who are also getting into the game with you. So do you feel like a boutique is an advantage here or a disadvantage or talk us through that? Well, I mean, it's a good question. They're, they're almost, I parse it almost into two things, like in general, and I'll come back to the ESG thing, but in general, yeah. is a boutique <laughs> a benefit or not? I mean, I'd like to think it's a huge advantage, mm-hmm. but, you know, I think despite some studies that, that have pointed to the outperformance of emerging managers for, I think, very obvious reasons, honestly, I don't think the vast majority see it that way. I think in, in some cases they want to, but the gravitational pull to past success, big brands, and the idea of too big to fail is just too strong. You know, I've often heard no one's going to fire you if you've hired an established, well-known brand and things go sideways because who's going to blame you? They're an established, right. well-known brand. And that's what we're up against. You know, yes, who's going to go first? And I think, honestly, the traditional hurdles of three-year track record and $100 million in AUM is really about taking comfort and someone else going first. That's what it boils down to. You know, and I think the funny thing is that despite the the depth of experience and the credibility of our team, which I do think is unique for a typical startup, in general, people, like I said before, disproportionately focus on the risks associated to being new, sometimes to the degree that they don't even think about the potential benefits, which are significant. I mean, we've done, I would say we were very deliberate in the design of the company and finding a strategic partner because We wanted to do everything we could to, having been the CEO of a firm, I can totally appreciate the concerns that an asset owner would have about a startup, right? Do you have the resources? Are you going to be around three years from now? Is this Band-Aids and sticks out of your garage? You know what I mean? So (laughs) we've done everything we can to try to mitigate those risks and give people confidence. And I think we probably need to do more to highlight all of the benefits, which has probably been the most exciting part of going out on our own. I mean, the team is hugely invested. They sincerely want to make an impact and build something, you know, we and our clients can be really proud of. You know, the ability to be innovative, flexible, nimble is huge. I mean, I've been in 
focus groups where it took us nine months to like name a fund. You know, I mean, it's, it's and then by the time, by the way, by, and you're doing that so you can do a campaign to market it. And by the time you do that, you're like, oh, the performance has turned around. Now we can't, you know. Forget it. So the, <laughs> for us, you know, the degree of creativity honestly knows no bounds. Like for us, it's a matter of prioritization. That's super exciting. So, you know, being That's able to, really fun. to take that experience, you know, decades of experience, knowing what works, what doesn't, and build something exactly the way we want it, you know, not bound to legacy mindset, you know. Established organizations don't adapt that easily. No. Even if they want to, it's a process to get it funneled all the way down or to get the movement to come from the bottom up, right? And, you know, it's often more evident in organizations that have met with success because that success sort of serves as a form of validation, as an anchor to, you know, what's worked in the past. And certainly I would say that those who personally benefited from that success are naturally reluctant to do things differently, you know? So they kind of cling to this, the comforts of the past. And that's how status quo and business as usual, you know, become sort of deep-seated defenders against change. I mean, the reality is that conventional thinking isn't gonna fuel innovative ideas and you can't unleash creativity from like the bounds of bureaucracy, (laughs) you know? So (laughs) I would bet on a boutique all day long. Now, when it comes that to that, is so good. Call, yeah, please. That's a different ballgame because I feel like, in many ways, we're leaning, like I said earlier, we're leaning in because we're very comfortable to use a phrase I've used often and I've heard you use very often as well is we have to be willing to repel to attract. And I feel so strongly that there's material information and it's our fiduciary responsibility to think about these things currently being acronymed as ESG, but whatever you want to call it, it's part of our job. And so what I find interesting is some of those larger firms that were all jumping on the bandwagon. And by the way, it's been in their DNA all along. Did we not know this? You know, from the early days, Hello? they've yeah. always been concerned. <laughs> some of them are walking it back. And they- what will be yeah. really interesting, I know the pendulum will swing. Because it's just silly, honestly. It's silly. And we're not doing ourselves a service as an industry by quieting things down in against political pressure because we're just giving more room for uninformed voices, you know, at the table. But it'll be really interesting when the pendulum swings and people realize that there is materiality and those same firms start to go back to oh, but it's our core belief. It's been in our team. It'll be really interesting to see that. And so, you know, for us, I'm just taking a lot of comfort and enthusiasm and being able to stand for something I believe in. And we'll see where it ends up. I mean, I think a lot of the greenwashing honestly happens for two reasons. One, people are trying to be all things to all people or bend themselves into a pretzel to be where they think the flows are going to (laughs) go. And to me, when you try to be all things to all people, you're nothing to nobody. Yes. Um, And, you know, and then I also think there's this such a willingness to say something that's different than what you believe and do. Like if there was just that discipline of we do what we say, we say what we do, it would mitigate a lot of greenwashing type of things. You know, you don't put something in a report that you can't demonstrate or validate, you know, things like that. It seems like 101 to me, but shockingly, it is what it is. If you know a fund manager or a founder in the investment world with a great story, drop a note to Stacy at StacyHavener.com and tell me about it. Till next time, I'm Stacy Havener. Thanks for listening. And now, a final word from our premier brand partner, Ultimus Fund Solutions. The conversion of Armut Berg's LP into an integral fund empowered them to grow the fund from 90 million to over 200 million and expand the reach from 100 investors to nearly 700 new investors and continues to grow today. By pursuing the conversion, Armut Berg was able to lower minimums to 25,000 welcome accredited investors in addition to qualified purchasers. The entire conversion process was highly efficient because Harmark Berg chose to partner with Ultimus and other partners with a proven track record in this type of structure-to-structure product transition.
The headlines are often too focused on new interval funds from pedigree providers, this new fund from this cool big firm, etc. Maximizing a fund's potential through a conversion can be powerful too, as we see in the story of Hallmark Berg. Traditional investment management and alternative investment management are converging. More retail investors are demanding access to non-correlated strategies in illiquid asset classes to complement or supplement public markets exposure. Interval and tender offer funds offer managers a flexible wrapper that combines many of the benefits of both 1940 Act and private fund structures. Interest in these products has increased significantly in the past decade, and we anticipate the volume of both new launches and structure conversions to continue well into the future. It is what it is. And you know, gosh, I mean, of course, I'm practically like jumping out of my seat over here, but the things you're saying resonate so deeply with me. You know, the bandwagon, watching the bandwagon thing go on in ESG was just, I mean, anybody who's been around for a while can spot that a mile away. So you need a shakeout in order to see who's still there, right? Who really believed, who did it because they saw the money. And who did it because they believed it was the right thing to do and they have a system to harness that on behalf of their investors. And so I applaud you for acknowledging it and saying what a lot of people are thinking, what needs to be said, and building a sustainable business that takes sustainability into account. This isn't a flash in the pan for you, and I really appreciate that. I want to touch on, you know, this is a really interesting question, and I think about it given your style of investing, but One of the other things that I talk a lot about that I think really matters always in investing, but particularly when you're a boutique, is the importance of qualitative due diligence. Mm -hmm. And obviously, the reason it matters so much when you're a boutique, when you're a startup, is you don't have the data. So sure, you could create some back tests, but the reality is an investor in a boutique is investing for very different reasons than somebody who is further out on the adoption curve that is, you know, investing in the big brand because they don't want to get fired. Like those are two very different mindsets, two very different personalities, two very different adoption curve spots, if you will. And so I wonder though, for you, given that quantitative is so much in your DNA, like how does that vibe for you when you're talking with investors? Do you find that qualitative is important or because you have a systematic side to, do they want to dig into data more? No, I think that I actually think the qualitative is super important. At the end of the day, I think people, they put too much into the quant word. At the end of the day, we're codifying our intellectual capital. These are our minds, our thinking, our insights that are going into the models. It's not like we're buying something off the shelf, you know what I mean, and pushing a button. And so, you know, it's important to understand what our thinking is, what is our philosophy, what drives our investment thesis, because that's what's going into the models, you know what I mean? And so, and I think it's especially important when it's a boutique and a startup. I'm well aware people want to hear from the founder, you know, why, why are we doing what we're doing? Why do we think it's going to be successful? And so I think that that is a piece that we lean on quite heavily. You know, why did we feel like we needed to go out on our own to do what we're doing? And that I hope will become an increasingly important feature. I think at the end of the day, you know, people do try to quantify as much as they can because then it, maybe allows you to be a little bit more easily comparing firms Mm -hmm. because you can kind of number on this and number on this and add it all up and see who has the biggest number. But I find that our conversations have been deeper than that, which I find very refreshing, honestly. And people seem to be open to hearing our story, which I'm grateful for. I mean, having had a background in sales and business development and all of that. It's not easy to Mm -hmm. get meetings. You know, people have plenty of choices and not a lot of time. Yeah. And so we're super grateful to those who've given us at least an audience, you know, to this point. And I think one of the things that I, I find most flattering is when I'm talking about what we're doing and actually someone said this to me, they're like, well, too bad you're not passionate about it. You know, jokingly. (laughs) And so I'm like, oh, great. I'm glad it comes across that way, you know? 
So I do think that's changing in the focus on the qualitative, less maybe, you know, totally quantifiable elements are becoming important. I love to hear that because I've often said, like people have asked me, being that I'm just, you know, super passionate to stay on the passion vibe about, you know, authenticity and storytelling. Like, well, what if it's a quant? I mean, people do business with people. There's people behind those models. What do you think? Just running themselves in a room with no interaction from humans? Like, I loved what you said about it's our inputs. Yes, we're codifying it. Yes, we're making it systematic, but it's our intellectual capital. It's our thoughts as human beings, as, you know, students of the market, as people who've lived this for years and years and years. So sure, it's systematic, but the underpinnings are still very, very human. Right, absolutely. And by the way, therein lies another, I would say, benefit of a quant approach is that what we are ultimately going to be doing is codifying successive generations of intellectual capital into these models. And just because someone leaves doesn't mean we lose those insights because they're already embedded. Right. You know, and so I think there's a lot that gets sort of lost because sometimes I think there's this assumption again that you're like, getting this thing that you're buying off the shelf and kind of like it's generic and you're just pushing a button and it's doing its thing, you know, as opposed to something you're like building yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah. And how does authenticity, you know, and kind of the qualitative piece show up for you? Because I imagine that here you've spent decades working in very big organizations with a lot of politics and just big organizational <laughs> stuff, bureaucracy and what politics <laughs> and so, a lot of suits. They were probably blue. Like, how does that feel for you? How has the journey been for you as a founder? Like, have you been able to tap into your authenticity more and kind of share your personal brand? It's a journey for all of us, by the way. So it's yeah. okay. If the answer is I'm still on that journey. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it took a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say that I am very aware of, I like to think I'm pretty self-aware, but I'm also very aware of other people and their body language and things like that. And I will say that when I first joined Rosenberg, I mean, it was a very eclectic group of people and lots of PhDs, lots of super cerebral people. And here comes this like Persian meets Scorpio meets (laughs) A-type bull in a china shop. And there was no doors on the offices. And I mean, I don't need a mic like you have because I have a really loud voice. <laughs> so I'm thinking, how the heck am I going to you know, work in here? And so it wasn't easy for me to just show up as Heidi, like on day one at Rosenberg. But I have to say that I tried to mute myself just until the point at which I felt like I had gained people's trust that they understood that I was wanting the best for the company. And when I got to that point, I got to be more and more and more my true self. Now, I would never say that I would do something that'd be completely against, but I, you know, I just was maybe more contained, like that kind of thing. Sure. But over time, I was anything but contained because people knew and were very, very clear that it was always about putting the company first and my team first. And so mm-hmm. I'm grateful for that because now that I'm where I am, I mean, I can, I feel very much more comfortable. I've been much more open on LinkedIn than I ever had before, just because I, you know, when the mood strikes, I've just never really been good at being told what to do or to try, you know, fitting a mold. I'm sort of more of a break the mold kind of gal. But I, I mean, I try to be diplomatic and thoughtful. I don't think I'm disruptive without thought or care about the potential, you know, consequences. But I, I guess I hope that, you know, if you spoke to anyone who's worked with me over the years, that they they would say that I'm sort of what you see is what you get kind of person. You know, I'm probably honest to a fault. And I'm deeply personal. I really am deeply personal in a way that that in this industry may seem surprising, but everything, including work, is very personal to me. You know, I'm, I'm very heart-led, which I think is generally, again, unusual, but it's allowed me, I think, to really feel, to really be open, which has allowed others to, I think, feel like they can be open with me. And I think achieving that level of trust is really the greatest gift, especially when you're trying to lead a team of people. So I'm like, oh my all gosh. 
and like I said, probably too much, <laughs> too much like that, but. Well, it is refreshing. And I mean, what a beautiful place to pause here. And also, let me just say, as a LinkedIn super fan myself, a great invitation for people who are listening to connect with Heidi on LinkedIn and follow along on her journey there. So Heidi, before we close out, I want to switch gears a little bit. Let's stay on this authenticity, like people do business with people, personals. I have a couple questions I want to ask that are inspired by Proust's questionnaire, but really inspired by James Lipton from Inside the Actor's Studio, which I was talking with someone. Yeah, that was such a great show. Wasn't it a great show? And someone was like, oh yeah, well, what I remember was Will Ferrell playing him on Saturday Night Live. And I'm like, well, that just is really (laughs) true and funny, but like, come on, I'm trying to be serious here. I'm getting in touch with my like, you know, philosophical side. But anyway, so you've seen the show. Thank you. That makes me feel less old when I talk to some people. They're like, I don't know it. (laughs) Okay. So we're going to start with hopefully an easy one, but I, you know, I might bite my tongue on that. So what book inspires you? Well, I would have said Andre Agassi's biography open, but unfortunately, Dan beat me to it (laughs) on your your two (laughs) podcasts ago, which by the way, was an excellent podcast. Thank you. He's great. So I was, ra- you know, I'm racking my brain about that because honestly, I hate to say it, but I don't have a lot of downtime. So most yeah. of what I read is either industry related or about leadership, uh, which is something mm-hmm. I'm very passionate about. And I haven't read, you know, really anything along those lines that I would necessarily say were inspiring. That's a very important yeah. word. So I think what really inspires me actually is reading notes that I've received from from people that I've worked with over the years. It's very meaningful to me when people, you know, write me an email or write me a card or write me a note. And so I, I have a box that I keep with all those in there and occasionally kind of just, you know, nostalgically flip through it. It's very uplifting actually to feel like you've made an impact on people's lives. So I don't have a great book recommendation, but. Well, I, I love that recommendation. Notes, those notes and look back on them. They're, so know, I you know, love that recommendation and I, Like I'm looking at my bookcase right now and I have a box sitting on my bookcase. It's turquoise with gold spots on it. And it contains all the notes and emails that people send me. And I do the same thing. And Mm -hmm. honestly, especially as an entrepreneur, you know, the advice of protecting your confidence is so important. And those notes, like the time you spend reading those things they will lift you up. They will remind you that you're really good at what you do and that sh- what you're doing matters and that who yeah. you are matters. And is, so I love that. I think that's a wonderful inspiration to share. Yeah, I read one yesterday and it caused me to actually reach out to the person who wrote it. Uh, and I hadn't talked to him. You know, we haven't connected in a couple of years. So, and I just called out of the blue and I was like, hey, I just reread your note and it really meant a lot. And we had a great catch up conversation. So that's wonderful. Love that. Okay, so let's go to place. What place inspires you? What's your happy place? Oh, well, I would say Tahoe is definitely a happy place because usually it involves my husband and my boys all being together. Mm. But in terms of inspiration, I mean, I go properly. Mm. I mean, Italy is my favorite place on earth. So that would be the more exotic choice, I think. But they're both very good. And I think as somebody who's traveled a lot, sometimes, and you're not the only person to say this, by the way, sometimes the most inspiring place when you're used to being on the road is being home, like being, you know, with your people in a place that means something special to you. So I like both of those shares. Okay, so now we're going to paint a picture. We are going to pretend that you are a literal rock star musician. You're walking out into a big stadium and you've got thousands of your fans. You know, this is weird because if you were a musician, they'd probably play your music. So let's say you're, <laughs> you're just, you're, That's yeah, I never thought thing. about that until this moment. So scratch that, you're not a musician, but you're walking out, you're you. You're walking out onto stage in front of thousands of your adoring fans and you're going to talk with them. You're going to tell them your story, all the things. What song do they play as you take the stage? What's your walkout anthem? Legendary. Legendary? Wait. It's by Welshly Arms. We're going to have to look this up. You have to look it up. I actually printed the lyrics out 
for my whole team and had them listen to the song on our first day. What? Weirdly, I'd never heard of the group before, but I'm a very music-driven person. Like, songs have different points in my life I can pinpoint to different songs. And that song happened to be the first song that came on my playlist after I told my company that, like, the executives that I was leaving. Wow. And I was excited about Radiant. And this song came on. And, I mean, some of the words are like, you know, we're going to be legends. We're going to get their attention. What we're doing here ain't just scary. It's about to be legendary. So it was Ah. just like such a motivator for me. So, and the team loved it too. So I love that. You're taking me back to high school when you used to, this is really going to date me here, (laughs) but I'm going to say it anyway. Remember when you used to cover your textbooks with brown paper bags and then you'd write lyrics? Well, if you were me, you wrote lyrics on them, like all your little inspiring things. See, that would be something I would have written on the cover of my textbook because I would have wanted to see that every day. Love that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you have to listen to the song. It's a very cool song. Okay. I'm very excited about that one. Okay. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Maybe a motivational speaker or coach. Oh. Either that or race car driver. (laughs) Race car driver? (laughs) I love to drive. Do you love to drive fast? I do, but I've never done a race car because I actually, I think I'm honestly overconfident in my skill set. Oh. (laughs) I'm very good driver. That's so good. But so I think I'm motivational. I mean, just the impact that could have. Like if you can help others see something in themselves, I think that's huge. I love that. Uh, the race car driver is pretty awesome too. Okay, so what profession would you not like to do? Definitely librarian. I really because I'm too, I'm too much of that like loud Persian Scorpio A <laughs> type. Like I cannot be quiet for that long. That's amazing. I mean, that I just so... can't even imagine it. I can't even meditate. Like it's, it just does oh. not work for me. That's like a whole nother podcast because I can't quiet my mind out. That's a whole nother thing. I agree with you on that. Okay, this one is a little bit reflective. So what do you want people to say about you after you've retired or left the industry? She genuinely cared. Mm. She was inspiring. And she made a real impact, made a real difference. Mm. I love that. That's really great. My three. Heidi, what a joy to spend time with you today. And I'm so grateful for your friendship. I mean, the more time we spend together, the more similarities I see between us. And it was fun for me. Like I always say, you know, you have a good podcast when you forget that you're on a podcast. And that for (laughs) sure happened for me today. And thank you so much for your candor and your authenticity and your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I think this is a fantastic series. I've really enjoyed listening to all the others and I feel honored to now be part of it. So thank you, Stacey. Awesome. Thank you, Heidi. Talk to you later. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment values may fluctuate, and past performance is not a guide to future performance. All opinions expressed by guests on the show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those at their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement by Stacey Havener or Havener Capital Partners.